0: God, we're here, we're, here to, we're here to hear from you, and Spirit of God, we need your help with that. Uh, but for you, softening our hearts and opening our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Christ, we would still be blind. So we pray for your work again, for those of us who have been saved by your grace and your favor, that you would once again open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And we think of the words in the Gospels, Lord, where, where else would we go? Where else can we go? Mm-hmm. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And even though some words may be hard for us to hear, hard to understand, hard to apply, Lord, would that be our posture? Where else would we go? God, you have the words of eternal life. So would you, God the Spirit, work through your word, um, through me as a conduit of grace to your people, to make much of yourself to us and in us. Would you amaze us at things we maybe have heard a hundred times before? In a fresh way, would you reveal yourself to us for our joy and for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> you can grab your Bibles and uh, let's go to First Peter chapter 4, somewhere around page 950 in the chair Bibles. If you don't have one, you can grab one of those. Um, if you haven't been with us, you know, as a church, we make it our pattern to to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we're in First Peter right now. And so we're going to be um, at the end of chapter 4. And I think as it relates to movies, there might be two categories of people. You could probably put this, apply this to TV shows as well. So my wife, Haley, she watches a movie one time and she never watches it again. How many of you are in that category in life? She just doesn't. She doesn't get down with reruns with movies. She watches it once. She sees it. There's maybe one exception, Steel Magnolias for some reason. Um, but there's that person, right? There's just like, hey, one and done. There's some of us that we just will watch the same movie over and over and over again, especially the ones that we like. Um, and there are times where you, you hit a, a theme in Scripture. And I would say in this book, there's a theme that is so present that we might actually be tempted to, to be that first person, oh, I've heard, I've heard this before. I've heard this before, therefore I just kind of tune out. Like I'm not really all that interested and engaged in hearing something I've already heard once or multiple times. But I pray we'd be more like the, the former, that we would be eager to just see and hear and be challenged by the same truth once again. And that theme is the theme of suffering suffering as Christians. So one of the the mega themes that is present in this book, and one of the things that I would submit that Peter is trying to do most centrally in this letter, is to answer this question. Like, how are we to live the Christian life in a world that's opposed to Jesus and at times opposed to us? Like, how are we to live out this ordinary Christian life that really is supernatural. Like we are those who are different because our God is different. We talked about that from chapter one because God is holy. He's other than us. So we're called to be other than the world and we're sojourners and pilgrims in this world. Like we don't belong here. We journey through a land we don't belong to amongst people we don't belong to. But as you read through First Peter, if you've done that over these months, that was my encouragement at the beginning of studying through this book is just read it every week. And if you've done that in any measure, you've seen that the, the, the word suffering, quite literally that word, is in every chapter. It's word trials in the first chapter, but you'll see suffering in every single chapter. It is a little bit like a rerun, like, oh, Peter's back here again. He's talking about suffering. And I think what's challenging for us is we're sitting here in 2022, right, with an extraordinary amount of freedom. Most of us won't experience real persecution like many believers across the world are experiencing, even this morning. It won't be our experience. This will largely be our experience, and this is a blessing. Don't get me wrong. One of the challenges of being able to have the freedom to come and worship together, hear the word of God collectively, to sing songs unhindered in our freedom, one of the challenges to that is it's very difficult to relate to first century Christians who are being ostracized, insulted, suffering even physically, simply because they're trying to live out their faith in Jesus. But as you go through this book, you realize like this is something we need to hear. And if you and I were first century Christians, I don't think there'd be any inclination of like, why is he talking about this again? It would be like water to a thirsty soul, to hear that there's purpose in your suffering. There's power present in your suffering. That God is at work. Like, Be joyful in the midst of your suffering. It's not in vain. Like, All of those truths would be so life-giving. And because it's not our experience currently, there's a temptation to maybe see it as a rerun that we don't really want to hear. And my encouragement is just like, let the Lord soften your heart again Don't tune it out because it's familiar. One of the hardest parts about preaching is I have to introduce you week in and week out to things you've already heard. That's one of the most difficult things, but it's not difficult necessarily because I'm a mediocre preacher. It's difficult because of our hearts. We want to hear new, fresh things. I wrestle with this text because I want to give you new and fresh things, I want to sound different than I sounded three weeks ago when we hit a similar theme. But Peter doesn't seem all that concerned about sounding original. That he wants to give us words that'll actually give us ballast for our faith, because even though we may not suffer physically, we see the biblical truth, Second Timothy three twelve, that for those of us who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. Jesus said, In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. There's going to be difficulty. And so, this text stands as another work of God in our hearts to give us stability in the midst of a world that offers us nothing but instability. In 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7, there's this picture of various trials that afflict the people of God. So, God has called you, He's given you a wonderful salvation by His grace. He's giving you an inheritance and he's protecting it for you. He's saving it for you. It's going to be there for you at the end. So rejoice in that. Although now, for a little while, you've been going through various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, Verses 13 through 25, there's this picture given that it's a thing of grace, it's a gracious thing. It's owing to the grace of God in our lives that we would would suffer as those doing the will of God, suffer unjustly in this world, following the pattern of Jesus, who although he did no wrong, suffered for obeying the will of God. And we've seen in chapter three, we, we see this central dynamic in the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God first peter 3:18 if you're in this room you've never surrendered to Jesus just let those words echo in your heart today that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God present us to God And that presentation, because of the work of Jesus, will be presented, not clothed in our own self-righteousness or unrighteousness, will be clothed in the foreign righteousness of Jesus. That's the hope of the Christian. God is bringing grace to his people at the end. His glory is going to be revealed, and we don't have to shy away at his return. Why? Because Jesus' blood cleanses us from all our guilt. Praise the Lord. Praise God. So in chapter 4, We see that we're supposed to have the same mind of Jesus, beginning of chapter 4, have the mind of Christ, love the way he loves, think the way he thinks, and suffer the way he suffers. So now we're going to read the text we're going to jump into this morning. Verses 12 through 19, let's read it together. Beloved people of God, church of God, Christians, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, if quoting from Proverbs 11, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So in verse 12, he says, people of God, beloved, don't be surprised. It's not an if the trial comes. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. When it comes, don't be surprised. People of God, whom I love, suffering For your faith is normal. This isn't strange. It's standard for the Christian life. And it may be severe. It may be fiery. And that's not just mere hyperbole for Peter. It may be intense. It may be unto death. And it is unto death for many. I'll tell you a story at the very end of the message that will highlight that. Thousands of Christians every single year, in fact, every single day die simply because they're trying to live out the Christian faith in places where it's not welcome. Sojourners, pilgrims in this world. And if we view suffering as abnormal, <clears throat> we'll not only be surprised, we'll become discouraged, disillusioned, maybe even disappointed in God. Because somehow we've, we've convinced ourselves that, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, that if you just do good, you follow God, that good will follow. Well, in this life, that's not actually the case. Like if you follow God in this life, there's ways in which like it may not end well for you here. But take heart because you don't live for here. Your hope isn't bound up here. You're just traveling through in a very temporary way. And you live for another world, another place, another time. And so live for that place. We talked about that last week, right? Live today in light of that day. Live your current moment in light of that moment, the revealing of the glory of God when Jesus returns or we meet him face to face. And these feelings of surprise, if we have them, can cause us to veer from living godly lives to do what? To try to minimize suffering, to try to minimize ridicule, being isolated or not being invited to the parties. But Peter says, don't be surprised. This is normal for the Christian life. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. I'm gonna jump down and we'll go back to verse 13 and 14. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So the suffering that Peter is talking about is suffering as a faithful Christian. He's not talking about suffering brought on by sinful choices. And it's a good thing for us to remember because each can come with their consequences. But he's talking about as you faithfully live out your life for Jesus, That's the kind of suffering you shouldn't be surprised by. If you suffer due to your sin, whether as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler, your consequences are just what you deserve. Like if you're a meddler, you're all up in everybody's business all the time, and nobody likes you, that's understandable. Nobody wants a meddler just all up in their face in their business all the time. And if you're a meddler, you should assume you're going to be ostracized, but that's for good reason. That's not what he's talking about. He says, let none of you suffer by way of your own choice or your own sin. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, that's a different case altogether. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed of Christ, but boldly honor him. This word is shamed. The word gives us feeling of being saturated with shame. Like so overtaken in the moment, the moment of pressure where maybe your faith is tested that you just can't help but respond and being ashamed about Jesus. What you're saturated with actually comes outward as opposed to bold, courageous, but relatively normal Christian faith. Paul seems to contrast the same word ashamed in Philippians 1 with the word courage. He says, this Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but, or in contrast to that, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Christians, in moments of when your identification with Jesus is inevitably going to alienate you from others who don't really care about the things of God, or when it's going to cause them to leave you out, when identifying with Jesus and living for him brings about ridicule from others, don't be ashamed of Jesus, be courageously bold for him in that name, the only name under heaven to men by which we can be saved, the name above every name. Now, so I think about my own journey. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a personal story because I think it demonstrates the point. As a new believer, um, it was actually the night before our wedding. I had all of my friends, well, my closest friends from college who were just a hot mess. Like they, they weren't Christians, certainly, and they had really no interest in the things of God. So they were part of my wedding, and they came out, and they were sneaking beer into my wedding. It was just, it was kind of pandemonium. But we had a night, the night before the wedding, where they went out to a bar, And they invited me to come. I'm like, well, they're only here for a little bit of time. And I had taken some stands on some things throughout our time together that made evidence, made evident the fact that I was different. I believe that's the case. But there was one moment of failure. And the words that were said to me, like, just cut me to the heart. And I'm going to share it just for that reason. So we're at this bar. It's like all my friends, it's like it's back in high school or college. They're around me. They slide a drink in front of me. And it's like they start chanting my name. Like my nickname was Moose in college. And they just start chanting moose. Like, they want me to drink this shot. And I'm like, man, this is really happening again. Like, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm like, I'm new in Jesus. It's not in my life anymore. Like, I'm feeling it. But because of the pressure, I, I take the drink. And my friend, right off to my right, I can see him as if he's still sitting there. He's like, see, it's the same old moose. I was like, oh, like in my heart, like something died within me. And you know why? Because that should hurt. Because there is something different about us, right? There's something different about the people of God. And so don't be ashamed of Jesus, but be courageous and glorify him. And what's interesting about this book, this book of 1 Peter, it's written obviously by Peter. Peter knew very well the sting of being ashamed of Jesus, didn't he? Yeah, you bet he did. When Jesus was betrayed, Right before he was crucified and Jesus foretold it, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. And so you might even be able to think of moments. It could have even been this last week. Likely all of us have moments where we realize, yeah, I didn't take a stand for Christ. I was ashamed of being called a Christian, being identified as a follower of God in this particular moment. And it may be that we will still have some of those moments. I pray that God will give us courage and boldness increasing over time. But take heart, that wasn't the end of Peter's story, right? So, what you see on one page in the Gospels of Peter denying he even knows Jesus in order to save his own hide, you turn the page just a brief few pages later, what do you see? Peter, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching to the masses. And you see mass conversions and revival through this man who was ashamed at once, but through the power of God became a bold lion for the sake of the gospel. And that can be the story of all of God's people. The moments of failure don't have to define us for the future. Praise be to God. Am I glad about that in here? Yeah, we should be. We're not qualified before God because of our best day, not disqualified because of our worst moment. We can still be usable in spite of our worst moments. Praise be to God. What causes us to courageously identify with Jesus in the face of suffering for be a Christian, for being a Christian? What what gives us the fuel to be courage? It seems that Peter's motivating us based on joy and blessing. So, there's a peculiar but powerful joy that fuels our willingness to stand for Jesus. So, going back to verse 13, just look at the text again with me. And Peter says, But rejoice in so far. Don't be surprised, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, here's one kind of point I would give you to walk away with there's purpose in our suffering. There's purpose in our suffering. There's a lot that could be said here. I only have time to share a little bit. But as you stand for Jesus in the face of unjust suffering, and that's what we're talking about here in this book, you are sharing in Christ's suffering. There's a way in which as you suffer in this way as a believer, you point to the suffering of Jesus as one who gave pattern to follow. Although he was righteous, he was treated as unrighteous. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And you see Jesus' identification with like, his people when they suffer. Right? You see this in Saul of Tarsus, Saul who became Paul. The moment of his conversion when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not my people, but me? There's a way in which the suffering of the people of God is intimately connected to the suffering of Jesus. And now, looking backward at the suffering of Jesus, our suffering, our willingness to suffer for God's sake is putting back to the willing suffering of the Savior as he went to the cross. And Paul said this later. As he thinks about his own life in ministries. He thinks about being made new and forgetting everything and losing all things but gaining Christ in Philippians three. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we might pause there and be like, Yep, give me some of that. Give me the power of the resurrection. We should rejoice in that. But what comes next surprises the human heart. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ. Your suffering has purpose, maybe chiefly because it points to the suffering of Jesus. It points to a greater reality that fuels your own heart. Rejoice, Christian, when you suffer for doing the will of God, you are walking the path that Jesus walked. Rejoice because in your faithful, courageous obedience, you can be confident when you meet God face to face. And you stand in the presence of his glory, you will have reason to rejoice, glad and not be ashamed. Rejoice. Rejoice when you share his sufferings. And your present suffering is pointing to Jesus and is producing glory. And I can't help but mention two verses that are so beautiful in representing this, and you probably have heard these, Second Corinthians four verses 16 through 18. Paul again says this, a man who knew very well suffering for the sake of Jesus says, so we don't, we don't lose heart, even though we're, we're broken clay vessels carrying around treasure and perplexed and broken and crushed. He says, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And listen to this part. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen, that are right now, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Romans 8.18, that goes a similar sentiment. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, and so in some ways, courage as a believer is created through comparison. As you look at the the little while sort of experiences of suffering in this life, the momentary light affliction, and there is significant suffering in this life. Paul went through substantial suffering, so the only way he could consider it momentary and light is if he's comparing it to something else, right? Amen. It's as if there's like this scale. Like this little metal scale. If I could place one right here, I'd do it. And on this scale, you have this little bit of suffering on the left-hand side. And you see it kind of bring up the other side. But if I would have like a 50-pound bag of gravel and just drop it on top, it just crushes the scale. Like it's not even in the same ballpark. It doesn't just shift it to the other side. It obliterates the whole thing. It's not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed at the end for the Christian. So we don't lose heart. We have faith, we rejoice in sharing in Christ's suffering because it's producing something in us. Every single ounce of the pain in life and the moments of pressure where our faith is tested and we face suffering for identifying with Jesus, courage can be created by remembering the eternal weight of glory of what is ahead and the temporary little while affliction in front of us. And some of you have done that. Some of you have suffered in that way. And you've laid a hold of eternal promises that have given you anchor. I can look at faces in this room that I know for certain that that has been the case. You've gone through temporary suffering. In the midst of that temporary suffering, you have held on to this suffering being momentary in light because you know that there's something better ahead. It's not worthy to be compared to it. And suffering in that way as a believer is a supernatural thing. You want to draw attention to it, right? It's just unnatural to suffer with joy, with any sort of perspective. Because suffering just has this ability to disorient us. And to cause us to feel like this is just not right. And there's a measure of that that's right because the brokenness of this world, because of the brokenness and the fallenness of man and the whole cosmos, this world we live is broken. Live in is broken. But there's a demonstration of the power of God when someone suffers willingly. There's power in our suffering as well. Not just purpose, but there's power in our suffering. Power displayed, remaining committed to living the ordinary holy Christian life in the face of opposition and suffering is a demonstration of the power of God. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a blessing to know that God's spirit is evident in our lives, isn't it? Has someone ever come up to you and and just like looked you in the eyes and said, hey, I just want you to know I see the grace of God in your life. I see God at work in your life. I can think of few things that are as meaningful as that statement. The Spirit of God is at work in you. I see it. I see it evident in the way that you respond to your family, the way you're journeying through this difficulty. God's at work in your life. And I believe that's what Peter is talking about. The Spirit of glory resides upon you. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I see God's hand in your life. Are you being insulted? Well, you're blessed. Why? Because there's someone at work in you. There's some power beyond your personal power at work in you that causes you to respond differently than the world does. The glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. 2 Timothy 1.8 says this, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's the call of the believer. If you've been through pain in this life, you know, one of the things as a believer that it can lead us to is the temptation to feel that God is absent. That God somehow just fell asleep. like Because this, this can't be the way that he would have written my story. By the primary moment I felt that was when my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer <clears throat> and then died about six months later. Because you look at that as a human being because of the, the acuteness of the pain you're like, God, this, this can't be the way it should go down for me and my family and my dad. That's immediately one of the feelings that we have is God must be absent. But if you look at the last verse in what we read, therefore let those who suffer what? According to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator. There's a whole series of sermons we could do on the fruit of suffering and the life of the believer. But one of the things we do know is that God is never absent. And this passage says that God isn't just absent. He's actively working in and through and upon you in your suffering to make himself known in a powerful way. There's power in your suffering. The thing I'll say is that there's proof in our suffering. Suffering proves that we, in fact, belong to Jesus. There's a really interesting verse in what we just read, verse 17. Peter says, For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? One of the things we know clearly from Scripture is that pain, suffering, trial, tests our faith to make it genuine. You see that in 1 Peter chapter 1. You see it in James chapter 1. You see it in Romans chapter 5. That we're called to rejoice just like we rejoice or exult in our salvation. We're called to exult, overwhelmingly rejoice in tribulations because they produce something in us. Perseverance, proven character, solidifies our faith is what that proves. You don't just become a better guy or better gal. Proven character means you come to maturity. It crystallizes your faith in a way that few things, if anything, does. There's a tested genuineness of our faith that comes about through suffering. And there, the Bible depicts that there's going to be a day, you see this in Matthew 25. There's going to be a final day of judgment, as we use the word this in verse 17. There is going to be a final day of judgment. The picture given is as we stand before Jesus, the, the, the whole world, past, present, future, will stand before Jesus and he will separate them. The people of God as the sheep Those who right now rebel against him and won't surrender to King Jesus are the goats. They're separated from one another. But there's a way in which it seems like Peter's depicting that judgment work of separating the sheep from the goats is happening even now in his church, among his people. Because there's a way in which, particularly through suffering, suffering will prove those who actually believe in the gospel those who truly follow Jesus, because there will be some, there have been some, that in the moment of testing, fail the test and they turn away because the cost was too great. And that's really the picture that is being given to us here. It's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. In the moment of testing, God is doing a work, judging those as to whether or not we truly belong in the family of God. In Proverbs 11, verse uh, can be translated as the righteous is saved with difficulty. It seems like Peter's using that in reference to like the righteous, those people of God are saved through the path of difficulty. Not just that salvation is hard, but the path to obedience and following Jesus is fraught with difficulty. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world, and our salvation is sure, and it's near. And then it culminates in verse 19, and this is where I'll close. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, we've probably known the joy of, of reflecting the character of, a, of an earthly parent. Or maybe a mentor. Or maybe you are the parent or the mentor and you've had the joy of seeing um, godly leadership expressed through those that you lead. Like following your example. And one of the joys in the Christian life is that we get a chance to to follow the example of Jesus. And you see it here in suffering. Because the one who, according to the will of God, suffers and trusts their souls to a faithful creator. You know who else did that? Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Does that sound familiar? That's what we're called to do. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but what did he do? He, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When you trust God in the midst of your suffering, you reflect your Savior. You reflect his posture, his mind, his heart. You suffer the way that Jesus suffered. Will we be courageously bold in the midst of ridicule and alienation and insults and even injury? I want to end by telling you just a brief story of two saints. These are a brother and sister of yours that you will never meet until you get to heaven. So, so Dora and Furley um, taught at a school in Santa Ramos, Colombia. In November of 2008, they were killed for their faith in Jesus. Let me just tell you just a quick glimpse of their story. So Dora grew up in Santa Ramos, Colombia. She went back to teach at a school. And that's exactly what she did. She taught at a school along with her husband, Furley. They taught the kids. They prayed with them every day. They sought to use the platform of education to preach the gospel to these kids. And over time, they became the focus of persecution from a radical extremist group in Colombia. And there was one day where a neighbor of of Dora's came to her and told her that these extremists, these guerrillas are planning on killing you and your husband tomorrow. Just announced it to her, plainly. So she and her husband, Furley, pulled their kids in, announced to their oldest daughter, she said it this way, she said, tomorrow there's a very good chance I'm going to be going to sleep for a very long time. And so the the whole night, they spent fasting and praying, which we saw that last week, right? Be self-controlled, keep calm, and pray. And so they prayed. They prayed, they fasted the whole night before and they got up the following day and they went to school like they always did to minister to the the kids, to preach the gospel. And sure enough, that day when they got to school, these gorillas walked into the classroom, excused the students, let them go and told Dora and Furley to say goodbye to their children. And they did just that. So after their kids left, they walked to door on Furley 300 yards out of the schoolyard down the, this path outside the village and they shot and killed him. And you can look at that and be like, what's, isn't that strange? This seems, re, this seems really strange. Like why would they get killed just for teaching kids? And this is an extreme example of something that happens every day. But they weren't killed because they were teaching. They were killed because they were, they were seeking to live out the ordinary Christian life in a place and amongst a people they didn't belong to, who didn't want to hear it. But in the midst of that tragedy, from an earthly standpoint, you see their pain have power. You see it become a platform, even for their daughter, who's 13 years old at the time, the, the book of the martyrs book I was reading you know, she was quoted as saying, if I met the people who killed my parents, I would be able to forgive them. Because she so understood the reality of the gospel through the influence of her parents. So when we think about this notion of suffering, very few of us will have an experience like that. They're all over the place. If you give yourself the time to read about them, pick up a book, pick up Fox's Book of the Martyrs. Order the magazine. There's a lot of resources online. You can read stories, but don't detach yourself from the normal experience of believers across the world. But our hope as believers is not found in today. But for the people of God who suffer the way Jesus suffered, like entrusting ourselves to God, there is a peculiar joy and a peculiar power that God gives his people to display the fact that we don't live for this world. We don't live for this life that we live for another. Our lives are not our own. They belong to Jesus. And so I pray for us in the various ways, even this week you might be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus, that just maybe a little bit we move the needle toward being bold for his sake because he's worth it. He's worth it. We're going to see in chapter five this call to just keep trusting in him. Submit your, yourself to the mighty hand of God in the midst of suffering. Trust him. Be bold for him. I want to pray that we do just that. God, it's sobering to know that what is maybe just feels to us as conceptual and theoretical, this call to rejoice and sharing in Christ's sufferings, is the actual experience of countless brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, even today. So, God, as we think about our own challenges, um, the challenges of being alienated from friends or from family or being passed over for promotions, in any way we see any glimpse of persecution, I pray that you'd help us to be bold and courageous. I pray that you'd allow us, through the power of your Spirit, to be a mechanism to display your power to the world that more and more we'd be able to, to see and those around us would see as well that the Spirit of God dwells within us and is upon us. Jesus, we love you. As your people, we declare our allegiance again to you. You have done what we could never do for ourselves would you help us live each day? Help us live this day and that coming great day where your grace and your glory will be revealed completely and fully and we'll never be able to to leave your presence. What a glorious day that will be. We thank you for the hope it's ours through Christ. Father, we thank you that you were pleased to crush your son so that we could be forgiven and Spirit of God, we bless you for opening our eyes to the wonder of who he is. We thank you for this time and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.